Is there a one amends that you could tell me a story about that sticks out in your head? My younger brother became kind of my older brother for many, 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 many years and helped me out like time and time and time and time again. And so I made an amends to him and I told him, you loved me and you took care of me and uh, you supported me and you, you helped me out of jam after jam after jam. You were always, always there for me. Without even saying it, within that conversation, I became his older brother again. And it, you could just feel it. And that's the way it is to this day. The voice you heard there is the voice of Tom L. Sobriety Day, August 3rd, 2017. Someone I met very early in his own sobriety. Welcome to another episode of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. My name is Mike S. I identify as both an addict and an alcoholic. You know, there are some amends that can be made and there are some amends that cannot be made. And, you know, me and Tom spent some time talking about that and it got me thinking about my own step eight, my own step nine process. And there is an amends that I'll most likely never be able to make. And uh, I just wanted to, to tell a story about that. So it was, I think, 2009 or 2010. And the I was working for this fund in New York and they were opening up an office in Boca Raton, Florida, like a satellite office. And I think every New Yorker at some point, definitely me, like despises winter, gets that seasonal depression. And I turned 30 and I figured like, why not? Like, why not skip winter? I don't know if this is a permanent move, but like, why not just try it and, and see what happens? Um, where am I in my addiction at this point? I'm at a place where it's still like in the okay phase, right? Where it's like seems to be under control. It seems to be something that's contained to weekends. Um, but I'm also like, I have the allergy, right? Where once I start, I don't stop. And so I, I get on a plane, I go down to Florida, I get an apartment in Fort Lauderdale and I'm working in Boca Raton, which is like 35 minutes north. And I figured since I'm going to Florida, um, I'd better get a speedboat, right? Because that seems to be what, that's the thing to do down there, right? If you're going to go to Florida, take advantage. And so I got a speedboat and on the weekends, I would take it from Fort Lauderdale to Miami where I had a few friends. Anyway, on the weekends, like your average Saturday, I would wake up in the morning and my drug of choice was Oxy 30s. So I would take an Oxy 30, I would like snort it maybe take a Percocet and you have a few drinks to punch it up. And then this is probably like at like 10 a.m. or something. And I would go to the boat and I would take off. And if you know this area, okay, this is the Port of Everglades. This is where like all the giant carnival cruise ships are docked. So you leave Port of Everglades and you make a right and it's like idiot proof. Like you just floor it and go. Like there's no messing up. There's no lanes. There's no right or left turns. You just floor it. You follow the coastline and you go. And so maybe this was like the fifth or sixth Saturday I was there. Um, it's February and it started like all the rest, oxys, the drinks, etc. And I'm in, I'm in like the good place that I want to be. And uh, I pull out of Port of Everglades. I floor it. And like I'd say like five minutes into the trip, I see this boat in the distance, like um, a tuna tower boat, one meant for like big tuna fishing. And no one's on it except for I see a woman like way in the distance. I see a woman and she's at the top of the tuna tower. And she's like waving me away. Like in my mind, I'm giving her plenty of room. Like, 
but she's waving me away. This is hard to explain, but I had four or five weeks of boating. I mean, this was more of a common sense call, but I'm like, I know I'm far enough away from you. Like, I'm not going to hit your boat. Like, relax. And so I just kept going. And so I'm going like 40, 45 miles an hour and I'm getting closer and I'm getting closer. And as I'm getting closer, she keeps waving me away even further. And like now, like the waves are getting more and more frantic and, and I get close enough where I can, like she puts her hands on top of her head and I can like see the panic on her face. Like I'll never forget her face. And it scared me so much that I just like cut the engines to the boat. Like I throttled down and I cut the engines. And I looked at her to say, like, what is your problem? And as I say, what is your problem, I notice a scuba diver on the right side of the boat, like, really close to me. And then I notice another scuba diver on the other side of my boat. And now I notice, so now it's scary. So now I notice um, she's screaming, the, the scuba divers are screaming, and it's clear that there's a third diver that's missing. And so I'd say like, I don't know, 15 seconds go by. And that's a long 15 seconds when you think you may have just killed someone. And then finally, I hear this bubbling up in the like a, this front of the boat. And this boy, he was like 13 years old, comes to the surface and he's fine. And so I'm like breathing a sigh of relief. Um, at this point, my boat is surrounded by like three or four police boats. They board me. They don't search the boat. They don't give me a breathalyzer. They just told me to be more careful and to and to go on my way. And they wrote me a ticket for $50. I'm sober at this point. It was a sobering experience. And I had missed a very clearly marked scuba flag that if I, you know, let's say if I had my wits, if I wasn't so messed up, maybe I would have seen that. And so I get to Miami. I continue the trip. And I tell my friends a story. And of course, at the end of the story, I said the classic thing, which is I'm never doing that again. Like I'm done with pills. Like they only lead me to a bad place. Like I'm never doing that again. I almost killed someone. I could be in jail right now. I'm so lucky. And, you know, I spent the rest of the weekend there. And on the way back, it's Sunday night. Of course, like I want to use again. And I think to myself like, okay, all right. Maybe I'll just never use on the boat again. Right, like that's the new negotiation I have for myself. And then a couple of weeks later, it's like, okay, like I'll only use if I'm not going far. And then like you know how this dance goes, like whatever. Six weeks later, I'm on the boat taking pills, drinking, like nothing has changed. And I tell the story a lot because it just talks about like the built-in forgetter, this idea that like I have a short memory that I think this time's going to be different. I tell this story for myself a lot just because I'm like, just for the gratitude, if anything, the gratitude of I didn't kill someone, the gratitude of I'm not in jail. And just a reminder, like if I didn't find this program, I'd still be out there. I'd still be on that boat. And like, God knows what I would have done. So with that, uh, an amends that I'll never get to make is to those people on the boat. And with that, I will uh, cut to the interview with Tom L. So here's the best place to start because I know your story a little bit. Let's start from the end and work our way back. Sure. Okay. So walk me through the day of your last drink. I had been to an AA meeting the night before, just done. 
Uh, I went to that meet from a bar stool. I went to that meeting, and that was when whatever happens happens. A moment of grace or whatever. I was sitting on the bar stool, and I said, "This, I, I, I can't. Just, just game over. Yeah, now go now." And I did. And I went over to midnight um, on Houston, and I don't remember who spoke, but I remember the I remember them reading the preamble, and that was sounded totally doable to me and I agreed with that and then they read how it works and I had never heard the 12 steps laid out like that and I was amazed that there would be something that I could actually do that might help me and then the vibe in the room was uh it was very peaceful and uh, I felt hope I felt a little bit of relief and some hope which I hadn't felt in a long time and I went home and I was lying in bed and I felt like I felt like maybe this you know maybe this maybe this is over, like maybe this, this nightmare that I've been in for years is maybe, maybe this is it. And it felt amazing. The next morning I woke up and I went back to work. I had it in my mind to go to the 12.30 p.m., the, the lunchtime meeting. I was really shaky and I still had the, like, you know, the obsession. Like, uh, you know, I couldn't go very long without a drink, without just feeling ab- physically weird and awful and then mentally like I was going to jump out a window and so I, I I went I made up an excuse to go to the hardware store I was on Prince and Thompson and uh, and I got a can of beer and I was walking down Thompson in between Prince and Spring and I had I got about halfway through the beer and again something happened and I said that's it and I threw the beer away and uh and then I went to the twelve thirty meeting, and then that that was my last drink. Wow! Yeah. A lot of people, myself included, when they first walk into a recovery meeting, I'm thinking um, I'm taking like everyone's inventory, right? I'm like, what what is this person's agenda? Who who's in charge? I remember that was a big thing for me. I I wanted to know who was in charge. And the second meeting I ever walked into, I said, I'm going to get there fifteen minutes early. And I got there fifteen minutes early, and um, a guy was standing behind sort of the literature counter and I went up to him and I said, Hey, my name is Mike. I want to know who's in charge. (laughs) (laughs) And he laughed at me and he's like, what do you want? What do you want to know? And I said, well, I'm just a drug addict. I'm not an alcoholic. So when I raise my hand, what should I say? And he goes, you can say whatever you want. And that was it. I was like, all right. And so that was the beginning. But I remember I had all these preconceived notions. I, I remember another meeting, Early on, and I looked around and I said that there was a um, a woman selling literature, but there was a male overall, and there was a male speaker and a male chair. And I was like, "This is kind of sexist. This room's a little sexist. <laughs> kind of messed up that they only let the women sell the literature." Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what was your first impressions of AA? Anything like that? No, I definitely benefited from the gift of desperation. Um, well, I should say, let me let me go back to you know my first answer there, where that was the first meeting that I listened to. I yeah. Been to, what does that mean? I'd been to two meetings two years before. I had been to a friend took me to two meetings, but I, I did the, I did the thing which we all know about. I think, or most of us do, where I said, okay, I see, I see, this is good. AA is good. I'm glad they have this. But I was comparing, like, okay, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not that, and I'm not yeah. that, and I'm, I don't want to talk like that guy. And, you know, a guy was talking about how he put, has to put God before every single thing that he does, his kids, his wife, everything that he does. I was like, that's a little extreme, you know. And so... First I, meeting know, I ever went to, everyone had, had done time. 
Oh, right. Yeah. So everyone's talking about, you know, doing time. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, I definitely am not as bad as any of these people here. Yeah. I definitely don't belong here. Yeah. A woman was talking about how she had cirrhosis of the liver and she didn't have very long to live. And all she wanted to do was die sober. And I was like, OK, well, that's, you know. So those meet, I mean, I was drinking beer on the way to the meetings yeah. to meet this guy. And then I would have a drink on my way back to wherever I was going. You know, I appreciated AA. I, I could say that's great, you know, and I, I now I see where this is going. I do not want to end up there, so I have to get my, you know, I've got to get it together. I've got to control my drinking so I don't end up there. And if anything, I'd started drinking more. Just the exact opposite happened. Right. So two years later, I had, you know, I knew about AA when I was sitting on that bar stool. I knew it was there. And that when that my moment of grace, that thing happens, you know, it's, you need to go, you need to go to AA, right. you need to go. And so my first meeting, I took no, no, I had, I was complete. I wanted to feel anything but the way that I was feeling. I was in such bad shape, physically, spiritually, emotionally, that I, anything, Anything besides that. So I know you're from Vermont. Yeah. And I know you're from a pretty big family. I have three brothers. And I mean, we have a large extended family for sure. Yeah. So tell me sort of what life was like. Life was, I mean, it was it was amazing. You know, uh, I have three brothers. Uh, my mom and dad were married. My mom stayed at home mom. We lived in an old house, 1824. It was the parish for the Church of England. My parents fixed it up. I think they bought it for like $6,000 or something. It was a huge wooden clapboard white house on a dirt road. Yeah. Uh, we had a big yard. We had uh, vegetable gardens. We had berry gardens. We had flowers all over the place. We had a rope swing. We had a tree house. We had pastures in the back. We used to walk to school through an apple orchard, get on our bikes and just take off for the day, you know, in the woods, all over the place. Do you remember the first time you drank? I don't remember the I, I remember the first time I think that I got drunk. I had been sipping on my dad's beers, you know, because he used to get home and he would crack a Michelob. Yeah. You know, and he smoked Kent cigarettes. He'd get home and he'd go to the fridge and crack a Michelob. And it was like, oh my God. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he made it look good. Made it look great. Yeah. I mean, uh, just great, you know, and all the guys did that. And, uh, and you know, my, my eldest brother had. Uh, did you like your dad when he drank? He yeah, he was fine. Yeah, yeah. I saw no. Diff I said never. Saw, I think I saw him noticeably drunk once in my childhood. He came up to the my brother and I shared a bedroom. They had gone to a party and he like he came home and he kind of sat on the edge of the bed and he was sort of talking kind of sweetly. Yeah, you know. And and he left. We were like, wow, that man. I, I think he's a little drunk. But he was not like not a like wasn't an issue. Yeah, uh, not at all. You know, my, my brother was into the Budweiser Clydesdales. We had beer can collections. A lot of the dads had these wood paneled bars in the basement that you go down. So it was, you know, it was, it was around a lot. Yeah. Like we were, and I was fascinated by it. You know, I, I hear in the, in, the, in the rooms a lot where people like really needed a drink when they were young. They realize that now because they were so uncomfortable. I didn't feel that way. What do you think you were so fascinated by, though? I don't know. Just like just, being it, in the boys' club? Yeah, we were like watching MASH, you know, and yeah. they had to steal in the tent and stuff. And it was just like, it just seemed fun and cool and like Animal House and, you know, all that. It just seemed like that's what you did when you were kind of cool and you were interested in having fun. Like yeah. That's, that's, you know, or like just taking the edge off. I wanted to drink 
way before I drank. But so people talk about sometimes about um, like their first drunk was yeah. like this aha moment, right? Like this, yeah. like I have arrived and now I can do all the things that I've always wanted to do. Yeah. But it seems like you were doing just fine before that. I felt like, well, yeah, I mean, things were really good. You know, I, even... I, I would complain about it. I was too young to know, so I, you know, I took it. I took. I took it for granted. You know what I mean? I, I could certainly complain and stuff like that. But no, I mean, we had it. We had it pretty good. My aha moment for me was weed. Really? What do you mean? Uh, just when the first time I smoked weed with a buddy of mine, and uh, we had gone to this neighborhood and like you know bought this little bag of weed, and his parents were gone, and he had lived in this nice house, you know. This old brick house overlooked this meadow, and we were out in the back, and we smoked it, and we loved it. And we I remember saying we were like, because it was the Nancy just drugs are bad. Like that was the yeah. that, like that was the that was it. Drugs are bad, and we were like, well, if drugs are if this is bad, man, we're gonna do everything. We're gonna do it all. And he had older siblings, and I had older siblings, so we just started to go around with our older siblings, and we were like. Like little like pets, like uh, petri dishes for the older kids. They would just feed us stuff at parties and yeah. see what happened. And we were completely, totally into it. So, at what point would you say like things cross over or things start to get bad? Because you're painting this amazing all American picture. Yeah. Life is amazing. Totally. So, like, I don't want to say like what went wrong, but like, what happened? I'm trying to figure out that too. Uh, I mean, I know later on because I drank. You know, this was this was, was uh, so I drank 35 years before I came into the rooms, and very quickly weed. And I shouldn't say weed so much, but not being sober was an obsession. Like I did not like to. I I wanted and and even if I wasn't doing it, I wanted tools available to me, whether it be weed or drugs or booze. There. Yeah. That was very important to me that it was available. Right, Although, it's like comforting when yeah, it's available. Yeah, it's there. Yeah, Whether I, I use it or not, yep. it, it needs to be there. And if it wasn't there from a very early age, very early on, I was not comfortable. I'm pretty sure that I really crossed the line. I mean, I'm sure I crossed the line earlier than this, but I really crossed the line when I moved to New York in 2007. Okay. I was never an all-night drinker, but I, I really liked sort of that Humphrey Bogart, Casablanca, sad sipping of whiskey at a bar. Mm. I like old man bars. I like old man bars with nobody in them. So I really liked, start, I started drinking in the morning at different sort of old Irish bars and like, you know, that that type of thing. I mean, you're working. Yeah. So how is no one noticing? Uh, that amazes me to a certain degree. When I moved down to New York, I was working in restaurants. And I managed a restaurant out in Bushwick. And, uh, and I was, you know, I was doing the wine list and yeah. ordering the liquor. And it was very, you know, there's a whole aspect of restaurant work that is, it's, you know, it's kind of a party. So... I remember when I sort of came clean to my family as to what was going on. Yeah. And now my situation was a little bit more unique because I had a pill problem, right? And so I spoke to my dad. Like, I told my sister first. And then, of course, I said to my sister, don't tell anyone else. And, you know, of course, she's going to tell my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my <laughs> dad goes to me and, he, you know, he, he like gave me a hug. And he's like, we're going to get through this. And, and then the second thing he said was, what does it feel like? You know, and which is like a very simple question, yeah. but also it's like a very important question. So if you had to describe the feelings of like what alcohol did, if someone said, what was the point? Like, why were you drinking so much? Why did you need it so bad? What would you say? 
That is a great question. Uh, I would say that it just, well, it did the classic thing where it took the edge off. I could dream a little bigger. I could forget about stuff that I wanted to forget about to a certain degree. And I could, you know, it, it helped me, like, it helped me fall asleep. You know, by that time, so many things, so many things had not gone the way that I had hoped that they had gone. That, like, those things just start to pile up. And, yeah. then, the, and then things that I had done wrong, like regrets and things that I was ashamed of and, you know, real life shit that I had to deal with kept piling up year after year after year till all those things became insurmountable. And drinking was a way of just sort of putting that away, like right. just put it away for a while. Just kick the can down just, the road. Just if I can just look in the mirror between the whiskey bottles and get, just get it fucking drunk and, and then go home and sleep, like, okay, like I then, but, uh, you know, as soon as I was the tiniest bit sober, all that stuff would just start coming back. So we, like, we know that, you know, and I'll flash forward again for a second where, you know, you come into the program and we learn about ourselves by doing the 12 steps. Yeah. And you learn like, so what was I pushing away? What was I drinking away? What did I not want to think about? For you, like, what were you trying to forget? What were you, what were you trying not to think about? It's like an after school special for me. As soon as I started drinking and doing drugs, my grades went down. Uh, my extracurricular activities sort of went down. I was into drama and music and stuff. So those were okay, but right. my commitment to them and my ability to practice and rehearse and have a plan and follow through lost its priority. And right. getting high and drinking took on priority. So I didn't end up going to college. I was going to take a couple years off. And then it just, I never, I just never went. I got into a college and I just didn't go. Some shit happened with my parents that was really devastating. And uh, what happened? Uh, my dad left. He left with another woman one day, right. basically, like gone. And which uh, was huge because you had huge. this sort of ideal, perfect family situation. It's, it's, you know, it's funny that I just sort of brush over that because that's a huge part of my story because that's when, however you want to describe it, you know, I was a, like, a, I was like one of those kids that didn't, a little bit rudderless and stuff, but I still had lots of options, you know, lots yeah. of options. And I had always, as I started to drink more and do drugs and stuff, I could see that, the, you know, the, the kids that were like kind of cooler you know, had an edge to them, you know what I mean? And like, they had sort of this, like, just, they were like, just darker, kind of cooler kids. And that's who the girls gravitated towards yeah. and all that stuff. When that happened with my dad, that's when... So you came home from school one day and dad I was, was gone. gone. It was after I was out of school and I was gone. He, I was going to this three-month National Outdoor Leadership School thing. In between, you know, uh, it was a, like a year after high school. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, it was the zenith of my childhood. Yeah. Just an incredible, incredible trip. And uh, my dad had mentioned something about mom and he having problems. And I just caught completely out of the blue before I left. Like, I mean, like... Right out of left field. I'd never seen any inkling of that whatsoever. So I didn't really know what to make of that. And I and I went. And then when I came home, I came home a couple of days early. And I got to my house, this big house that we grew up in and everything. And we had this mud room. We call it a mud room where you keep your boots and yeah, your jackets yeah. and all that stuff. And uh, everybody had their own hook, you know. And my dad's hook was empty. And I, I went upstairs to the master bedroom, and my, then my dad had a closet, my mom had a closet, and my dad's closet was empty. I was like, whoa, like, wow, what? And I called the brother, and he was like, yeah, dude, you, bet you should you probably want to come over here. 
everything just turned upside down. Like all that stuff that I described from my childhood, that was just over, like over. You know, my mom was absolutely devastated, uh, crushed, absolutely crushed. People didn't know how to talk to us anymore. Well, was he, there was another woman? Another woman, yeah, yeah, that everybody knew. And, uh, and that was just the way it was. There was no family therapy. Like, my dad didn't say boo about it. Like, it, that's just the way it was. You know, this woman's a part of our family now. And it was just really, when you haven't gone through anything close to that, and then that, it just happens. It was just, I mean, it just rocked our world. It completely rocked our world. And, uh, and we suffered for a long time. You know, my brothers suffered from depression, and they'd been through a lot of hell. Uh, and I went through a lot of hell. But th the reason I'm saying all this is because I remember having a distinct thought that I was I was like, good. Like now I have a, now I have a reason. Like that's when my now is, I can be bad. Now my ism. Now my ism. That's when it found its moment. Like whatever that chemistry, whatever ever that the trauma plus chemistry, all the stars aligned, and it was like now, yeah, boom, bam. And then I just started making bad decision after bad decision, you know, drinking more, getting really fucked up, like picking the wrong girls, just not just spending money, moving up. Let's talk about rudderless. But that's, but I wanted that because that was my that's the what the ism, the I seek misery. Like something was comforting about that. Like it was like in sobriety, I look back now and I'm like, I wanted to show everybody. I wanted to blame it on them, you know, like I, I, I didn't have the words for it or I didn't have, I wasn't confident enough or we didn't have a relationship where I could explain it to them. Yeah. So I'm going to show you, I'm going to be a fuck up and then I'm, and it's your fault. You know what I mean? That's a big theme to my drinking. Like I'm going to hurt myself because you hurt me. So part of this program, I'll go, again, I'll flash forward again, yeah. but is, you know, when you get to your fourth step, yeah. it's about, uh, and then your ninth step is about, you know, going through your resentments and yeah. then when they make an amends. And I'm sure you had a huge resentment towards your dad for doing yeah. that. Were you able to speak with him about it? I was not. He, he, uh, it, was a, it's a, it's a real bookend to the story. That's, he would, the, his death was the beginning of the end of my drinking. His, he died in 2017. He and this woman had been together for 28 years. He didn't speak to my mom for 10 years after they got after they separated and divorced. And then it was very, very limited contact. They never reconciled in a way that a lot of adults do reconcile when they divorce. And they have kids and stuff, yeah. you know. And I had always hoped that at some point in time it would be like, you know, you're the mother of my kids. We raised them for 25 years together. Like, good job, you know. Yeah. And I was really hoping for that. And so he, he had a terminal heart disease. In early 2017, he made an announcement that he was going off of his meds, and that meant death. Yeah. So he went into hospice, and for about three days, four days before he stopped his medication, my brothers and I were there, and you know my nephews and nieces were there, and uh, a lot of people, like old friends, like teachers, you know, the mailman, like people from church, like you know people that we knew, all were coming to say goodbye and, yeah. and hang out and uh i still don't know to this day who but my mom got an email from the other woman and uh it said you're not welcome at the funeral at the to say goodbye oh oof. Yeah, to say goodbye and uh, i that 
I still, I have, I talk to my sponsor about this a lot. I don't, that, I was, I was just, I mean, mad doesn't even begin to, you know, it doesn't even begin to explain it. And, uh, so then how do you describe to someone, I know you have sponsees. So like if you had a sponsee and they had this situation and they could no longer make a physical amends to someone. Yeah. I mean, what would you tell them to do? What did you do? Uh, well, with the I haven't done anything with the woman. I pray. I pray. Well, no, I meant with your dad. With my dad, uh, I my I talk to my dad a lot in my prayers in my quiet time. You know, I I I just I can't. I have to forgive him. It's difficult sometimes. Kind of like faith in a way. You go sometimes. You know, like I I think it's natural to doubt sometimes or have doubts or go you know faith go in and out yeah. or just you know sometimes be a little stronger and stuff like that but for my dad yeah sometimes sometimes i'm able to be just real open about it you know he's on a lot of morphine and stuff like this last like week or so so i don't know if he was that even cognizant of what was going on a lot of anger that it even before then that he couldn't sort of reconcile and forgive and just you know Talk, talk about something that you can't change, yeah. you know, in the serenity prayer, like accept the things we can't change. And that's, I can't, that's it. I can't change that. At some point, maybe mm, a year before I came into the rooms, I made a bunch of proclamations to people. Oh yeah, I got that story. Too. That I had cleaned up my act, yeah. right? And I said, I'm no longer uh, buying pills. Uh, I'm no longer doing this. And the problem is you say these things when you have like three days off of them, right? Yeah, and yeah. then. Yeah. Of course, what happens, I start using again. Yeah. And now you can't tell anyone. Yeah. So now it's like you're living like a double life. Oh, baby. I know. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. In 2014, I was still, I was living in the city and I, and you know, like it was just, I had left that restaurant and I couldn't put anything together and nothing was working and I was drinking more and more and more and I, one bad girlfriend after another, like just no business being with, like, you know, you could see, like, yeah. this is not going to, this is going to be tragic. This is not going to end well. This is a, you know, like, like, this is just doesn't make sense. And like, yeah, this that's, is what I want. That's what I'm going to do. And yeah. then it wouldn't work out. And I would still be like, why didn't it work? Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Just, just lying. You know, you just like, you just set, you're just constantly setting myself up. I, you know what I call it? It's really, it's like, as soon as that happened with my dad, when I was that age, when he left, I started gathering evidence, negative, like that's, this is why the world sucks. And this is why the world sucks. And this is why I'm a fuck up. And this is why I'm a right. fuck up. You know, gathering evidence. And that's what that's, I want, like. Well, you this know, is like fuel for the fuel, drinking. Yeah, more. It's like more. shoveling Give coal me more. in the furnace. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Want, and, and I didn't even know it, but that's what I was. I was self-sabotaging myself so that it wouldn't work out because that's what happens. Shit doesn't work out. You get, yeah. you get screwed every step of the way. But in 2014, I mean, I was like, I was already done. Like, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired for sure. And I made the big announcement. I got, I got a drinking problem. Yeah. I got to get out of New York. And my mom said, come to Vermont. You can stay with me. I got a room here. You can dry out. All my brothers were like, yeah, this, you know, we're, we love you. We're fully, like, totally. We're, and no one's surprised by this, right? No, like, no, no. They're yeah. all like, oh, we're so glad you yeah. said something, blah, blah, blah. 
and all my friends were like, oh, that's a good idea, you know, that's, that's really good. And I, and, and I wasn't bullshitting. Like, I, I meant it. Like, I needed to stop. And I was going to go to Vermont. Yeah, I was going to go to Vermont. I'm going to clean up. I'm gonna, I need to fucking stop drinking. That's where I can do it. I'll go just stay in this room at my mom's house. Summertime. It's beautiful up there. I'll just chill out, get my shit together, reorganize, come back to New York, a new man. So it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's, it's right out of the book, too. So drove back to Vermont, six hours, no drink. Drank like, I don't know, like, I don't know, probably like three, four shots of whiskey and like three, four beers before I get in the car with right. my buddy who's driving me up there. Gave up, gave up a beautiful apartment, you know, walked away from a job and uh, went up there. Six hour drive, no drinking. Got to my mom's house. My friend takes off. My mom had this teary conversation over the dining room table. She's so proud of me and anything that she can do. And like, she's, you know, all this stuff and, uh, that this is going to, this, this will be good. This will be good. And I was like, yeah. And I, and through the conversation, I was like, yes, yes. I was really looking forward to like straightening out. She got her dog. She took her dog for a walk and I was, and I went to the door and I watched her walk down the road. And then she went into these, like through this little sort of, I don't know, like, it's not a hedge, but it's like this little row of trees into the cemetery where she walks her dog. And I, like, bolted out the door, across the road, across someone's yard, through a hedge to the gas station, got two 24-ounce cores, ran back to my mom's house and just pounded them in the kitchen. Yeah. Like, without even, like, no thought. I was like, oh, my God, you know. (laughs) Thank God. Thank God. Like, oh, my God. Because it, 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 I was like, oh. But at the same time, it would say, I think they call it the jumping off point or something like that, where you you know, you're like, I'm screwed. It's like they talk about the phenomena of craving. And I drank all summer long. I drank. I in, had, in secret. In, I, had, I had beer cans uh, in a lily patch up the road. I had beer cans in, the, in that hedgerow that I talked about. I had beer cans down in the wood pile. I had a bottle of whiskey in the recycling can. I had a bottle of whiskey down in the basement. I had beers in all my bags. I had beers and whiskey and jackets in the closet. I always took out the recycling like a good boy because yeah. like I would you had secretly to. fill it up, you know, the day yeah. of recycling with all the bottles and get them all cleaned up. I had a whiskey bottle in my mom's car. I would go driving so that I could drink. Right. So let me ask you this question. What was the hardest part about the first, let's say, 90 days? Um, Besides the physical part. I mean, there's definitely a physical part. Well, there was. But I have to say, like, you know, that gift of, that gift of desperation for me. I, I swear, I think I, I experienced step one, two, and three on the bar stool. I knew, like, I had one, one was no-brainer. You know, I was powerless over alcohol. My life was completely unmanageable. Absolutely. And I came to believe that a power greater than yourself could restore your sanity, AA. Mm. That was my, and I was like, I know, I need to go to AA. I can't do this. Within like one minute, it was like, and whatever they want me to do over there, I'll do it. Yeah. And I know God has something to do with it, so fuck it. Okay. And so the, I think the most difficult thing really was, uh, I didn't really want to talk to too many people. You know that wolf packs things that happen a few times, like it happens sometimes. Oh, where too many people coming up counter? to me. Yeah, 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 too many. Yeah, I see that, and I, I, may, I think some it works for some people, but I, I really didn't have too many difficulties. I have to say, I couldn't go an hour without a drink without starting to get the shakes and starting to sweat and stuff like that. And after that new, after that lunchtime meeting, my second day, that shit went away. Yeah, I don't know what 
So that, and I didn't even realize that till like six months later when I was given my first qualification. And it dawned on me. I was like, you know what? Like I didn't, the, all that stuff, all the shakes, the dry heaves, the sweats, the anxiety, that was gone. Yeah. It just went away. What have you learned about yourself in spray? Oh boy. Uh, what I've learned about myself is, you know, it's right again, right out of the book. Uh, grandiose, a lot of self-pity. Like all my depression, all that sadness and depression that I thought, you know, that I suffered from, almost got medicated for many times. All those suicidal thoughts and like all that stuff was self-pity, not depression, mm. not sadness. I mean, it was sadness, but it was self. It was it was self-inflicted. And then all the times that I got screwed over, I had sabotaged myself. So the biggest thing that I learned that like my life is my fault. I, we're not the victims uh yeah yeah I'm, i did it i was i played a huge role in all of that stuff because it made me feel miserable when that clicked on that was my go-to that's the only way i knew how to feel is there a one amends that you could tell me a story about that sticks out in your head um, I think that, yeah, I mean, uh, the one that, the one that I found the most touching, um, my younger brother became kind of my older brother for many, 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 many years and helped me out like time and time and time and time again. Um, and I know that he, and he would make up, he wasn't an enabler, but he would try to understand my whole story about being kind of like a, because I played music and I did artwork and stuff, being that sort of tortured artist right. guy. Yeah. Of course, life wasn't going to be easy for me, you know, like, I, you know, like I'm different, like I'm tortured, like, right. I'm like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's got to be like, I'm cool, like, yeah. it's, you know, and he just, he supported me all the way, every step of the way, and my, both financially, emotionally, gave me places to live, you know. He let me borrow his truck when I sold it. <laughs> yeah. He let me borrow his truck and I fucking sold it. <laughs> I mean, and he was understanding about it, you know. So his what did wife you say? was furious, and, and, but he was like, no, nah, you know, Tom, he just doesn't, you know, like. And so I made an amends to him and I just said, I, and, I, and I just told him, like, I told him that. I told him, you loved me and you took care of me and uh, you supported me and you, you, you helped me out of jam after jam after jam and you were always, always there for me. And I knew that, and I took total. I totally took advantage of you, and I used you, and I stole from you, and uh, you know, and it was just so wrong of me to do that. And you know, we talked about some other stuff, but but without even saying it, within that conversation, I became his older brother again. Yeah, and it, you could just feel it, and that's the way it is to this day. I'll get you out on this one. Yeah, yeah. If you were going to give a piece of advice to a newcomer, someone who's trying to get sober now, one yeah. thing, what would it be? I, you know, I, I, I would, I think I would say when I went to that twelve thirty meeting, that second day, um, you know, Mary. Yeah. Okay, so Mary, she took look, one look at me, one look, and she said, "Oh, honey, you don't have to live like that anymore. You don't ever have to drink again." And something about that really clicked. Yeah. And uh, so if I could say that to anyone that's struggling, it's like, it's true. Like, you know, if you, you don't need to, whatever hell you're in or whatever, like stress and all that shit, you, it doesn't need to be that way. And you don't ever need to drink again. 
Thanks again to my guest, Tom L., for coming on the program. Again, a couple of quick announcements. If you want to reach the podcast for any reason, any questions, any comments, you can either leave a review, you can find me on Twitter, it's at KCB Podcast, or you can email the podcast directly. That's keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com. Again, my name is Mike S. This has been another episode of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery, and I'll see you next time.